You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Adrian Frost and Laura Geyser. This month, we're reading The Loving Push by Temple Grandin and Deborah Moore. Let's get into it. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club. How are you, Laura? I'm doing very well. How are you, Adrian? I'm so good. I'm really happy to be talking about Chapter 2 today of The Loving Push by Temple Grandin and Deborah Moore. So in our last episode, we covered the foreword, the introduction, and the first chapter where we learned about the different people who are going to be profiled in the book. And chapter two is about the three necessary components of your child's success. So it's really focused on success and what you can do to support it. So some overall observations that I had from this chapter were that the individuals in chapter one really didn't quit or give up. They kept moving forward in the face of obstacles. I thought that was really impressive. Every single person who was discussed mentioned at least one adult who exposed them to new ideas or new ways of thinking about themselves and also to novel experiences. So these components helped to pave the way for each person's success, and they were encouraged and stretched outside of their comfort zone by at least one adult in their life. We're going to start by talking about creating a positive mindset. This is about helping to cultivate a positive mindset and self-esteem by giving specific compliments. And this is what parents can do or educators or therapists. So generalities might be too difficult or confusing for these kids. As we know, Mm -hmm. they really like specific feedback. So instead of saying like, oh, you're such a kind friend, you could say, wow, I really love how you went over and helped that boy put the hanger back on the rack when we were shopping. You noticed his arms were full and I could tell he was really grateful for your help. I love how you help others. So when you give those kinds of specific compliments, it's easier for them to create a positive mindset about themselves. This is a big part of creating a growth mindset in our kids. And I work with preschoolers who stutter. And in the Palin PCI program, they have a big emphasis on growth mindset and specifically this, just that your praise needs to be really specific to what the child did. And I've seen a big difference with the kids, not, you know, not kids on the autism spectrum. All kids really benefit from this type of praise. It totally changes the way they see themselves and their abilities. Absolutely. And I think that's also our jobs as therapists to be on the lookout for those moments where we can give that kind of specific positive feedback for sure. So they also talk about how many children on the spectrum are casualties of something called learned helplessness. So this concept was introduced in a study that was done by Dr. Seligman, where three groups of dogs were placed in a room with a floor that shocked them mildly. So not enough to really hurt them, but unpleasant enough that they wanted to avoid it. I don't know why these studies are always so horrible to animals, but it's done. It was agonizing for me to read this, even though they say not enough to hurt them. But imagine the damage psychologically that's done to a dog where the floor they're walking on is just shocking them. You can't just walk. I know. I know. I was sad reading it, too. But uh, I guess it's on Dr. Seligman, you know, he's the one. Yeah. Okay. so group number one of the dogs experienced the shock and then were released. Group number two had buttons they could push that would stop the shocks. And then group number three had those two, but they did nothing. They didn't really work. 
So afterwards, they found that the groups one and two recovered pretty well, but group number three exhibited signs of depression and anxiety. And then when they put the dogs in similar situations again, group number three generalized their powerlessness and acted completely helpless. So even though the floor wasn't shocking them, they acted like they knew it was going to. So why even try? I feel like that's so sad. You know, we can keep this in mind when we think about children on the autism spectrum because they're very susceptible to learned helplessness because one, they have experienced trauma in the past, either from sensory overload and meltdowns or maybe from bullying, which a lot of these kids experience. And then two, they have different neurological wiring. So it's hard for them to see the big picture and instead they kind of hyper focus on a small part of the picture and fail to see alternatives or other choices that might be right in front of them. It's really our job to help children see their choices and act on them as soon as possible. Sorry, I wanted to go back a tiny bit back to learn sure. helplessness because once again, sure. I think this is such a big problem, not just for our kids on the autism spectrum, but for all kids with varying disabilities so often they have adults doing a lot of things for them and we're really doing them a disservice if we don't push kids to do things themselves, initiate things themselves. A kid gets to high school and they're so used to having someone right there doing things for them and it can be just really limiting for them the way that sometimes we help too much. But then also, <laughs> I don't know if you remember this, but we had a professor in graduate school who said he feels that women have developed learned helplessness in the area of math. I don't remember him saying that. Do you remember? <laughs> and I always think about that. And it is a thing where sometimes if you just say to yourself, I'm not good at blank, yeah. it starts to become part of your identity and you don't ever try. And that can be true of anything. And I think I've been guilty of that sometimes with math or with geography. I'll go, oh, I can't remember names of, I don't know geography. <laughs> but it's like, well, is it that you can't remember it or it's just not important to you and you've never tried? Sometimes when you say I'm not good at something, then you just decide that's it and you're not going to try. Yeah. And so I think sometimes the kids with autism have that attitude. They say, I'm not good at that. I have no interest in getting good at it, trying to do it because I know what the outcome will be. I'm not good at it. Oh, well, maybe geography is just not an area of special interest for you, Laura. <laughs> well, if I ever want to be a Jeopardy contestant, I'm going to have to buckle down and learn it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not easy for me either. But yeah, that's really interesting. And I wanted to also say, you know, I have five years of experience working at a high school. So reading this book, I can think of so many kids and so many different situations where I've seen all of these things play out. Mm -hmm. And when you were just talking about the helplessness, it was making me think of one-on-one -on -one aids. That is a really fine line to walk because on one hand, these children need support. But on the other hand, they can rely too much on the aid and then be in that state of learned helplessness. So sometimes it's the aid being really attuned to the child and being really good at their job and knowing when to pull back and when to support and sometimes it's the IEP team needs to make a decision about, you know, whether or not it's necessary anymore. But I've seen a lot of children who really don't need their aid at maybe the 10th grade level, the 11th grade level, but the parents are scared and they want it for their child and, you know, they don't want their child to fail. And there's just so many different components. But I was thinking about that because that can be a really tricky 
situation. Yeah. And even, you know, I worked at an elementary school and a lot of times those decisions to put the aids in place are because of the parents really pushing and the IEP team were pushing back and knowing that the child can get by in school more independently. And, you know, I, it's a really tough thing to get that right balance because also it's kind of a crapshoot how good the aid will be. You, you don't, you know, it depends if it's an agency, if it's an employee of the school district, it's just, it's really difficult to get the right aid. And sometimes you see it work out and they are the right type of person that, that does push that kid to be more independent and is just there to support. But then sometimes you see that aid that's just doing everything for the kid. Hearing you talk about that too makes me think a lot of aids are put in place when the child's really young, kindergarten, first grade, and then it is fought for and kind of grandfathered in from the IEP for many years. So yeah, and actually many of these family members and mentors mentioned in the book would make fabulous aids. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. Like some of these people just have such great natural instincts. I can't even believe like, I'm like, all these people should be special ed teachers because these are the kinds of people we need, you know, out in the field. Well, moving on, then there's an example from Temple about a woman who told her she was afraid to go into certain stores and it was really impacting her life because she couldn't shop where she wanted. She was really limited to like only a handful of stores. So in typical Temple fashion, she said, go to that store right there, go buy a newspaper. And I guess the woman just did it. And then Temple congratulated her on doing what she was so afraid of. And it just worked. And again, it's because Temple just kind of, if she had sat there and really listened to the woman talk on and on about her fears, her anxiety would have really increased and she maybe wouldn't have been able to just go buy the newspaper. But because Temple decided to strike while the iron was hot, it was more of a teachable moment. And the woman probably walked away thinking, wow, I can do these things that seem hard. Yeah, I like the idea of just doing the thing because if you do let someone sort of they can perseverate on the fear the anxiety and it just grows and grows to the point where they're paralyzed and really cannot face whatever they're scared of so i love temple just right there on the spot when she meets this woman go for it (laughs) making her go to that little newspaper stand or whatever it was and showing her that she was more capable than she thought yeah me too There's another example of Patrick and his Aunt Mary. I have in my notes, in parentheses, um, what a saint this Aunt Mary is. Like, I love her. Again, she (laughs) sounds like a perfect natural special ed teacher. Everything she does is so instinctive for her, but right on the money. So Patrick liked to eat out, but he was afraid to go to restaurants. So his Aunt Mary would take him to really simple places where there was just like a menu on a wall. No, like ordering at the table, but he would get so overwhelmed and then cry and refuse to eat. And his Aunt Mary would say, like, while there's no rush, you can and must decide. So again, she was not really letting him out of it because he was throwing a fit. She was just saying, like, take your time, but we're really going to do this. So they would go back to the counter, practice some breathing and then just choose an option. And she would redirect his attention to other people in the restaurant to sort of break him out of his tunnel vision. But it worked. And Aunt Mary's advice is, quote, always teach about ways to get past the anxiety and helplessness rather than let it take over the situation. So they use this term central coherence. And I had never heard that term, but it's, you know, that people with autism just naturally focus on one detail. 
this just made me think of the wheel of awareness, you know, and even that example of Patrick and the aunt and how she naturally knew he was so focused on his anxiety about ordering that he had no awareness of what was, you know, she helped him to see. It's almost like a wheel of awareness of the restaurant. People are trying to eat. You are hungry. You need to eat. You're afraid to order, but I'm here to help you. The employees are nice, you know, like helping them see that whole big picture. And here we have the whole brain child coming in. They have this strategy for helping not just focus on that one thing that is causing you so much fear or anxiety, but seeing the bigger picture. And I don't know, I had never heard central coherence, but I liked that it made sense to me. That's a great term. And I agree that it does dovetail pretty nicely with the wheel of awareness. But you know, I can relate. I sometimes feel overwhelmed in a restaurant where maybe it's new and I've never seen the menu before. And again, Patrick is one of the younger people, so they probably had internet access, but it could be really helpful to like pre-look at a menu before you go to a new restaurant, you know? So I do that all the time. I wrote that down. (laughs) But then I thought kind of like an aid, are we creating a situation where then he'll have even more anxiety if he does end up at a restaurant Mm. where he can't see the menu ahead of time? Mm. But yeah, I do that too. If I'm going to a new restaurant, I like to check out because especially if I'm going to be talking with people, I don't want to have to sit And like really digest a menu. (laughs) Right. No, it's smart. It's a good strategy. But you're right. Maybe it's child to child. You know, it depends on them. Mm -hmm. But the conclusion to that story is that now Patrick is a restaurant social butterfly. And he really likes to try new things. So go, Patrick. And especially kudos to Aunt Mary. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then again, just to wrap up that little section, you may have to try over and over and over. But eventually, they will stop feeling helpless and have more confidence in themselves. This is about learning optimism and resisting habitual negative thinking. Dr. Seligman also coined a second term, which is learned optimism. So he built on the concepts of cognitive behavior therapy, commonly known as CBT, and rational emotive behavior therapy. CBT says that something activates an event, then we respond with a rational or irrational belief, which then influences the consequences. So he realized that more than intellectual insight is needed to maintain change in our behavior. And so he added the terms disputation and energization to the model. Disputation means we have to expose the kids to counter evidence of their beliefs, often in the midst of their vigorous resistance. And energization means we actively celebrate the success that follows making positive choices and reclaiming autonomy. So autistic children's brains are really good at focusing like lasers, which we were just talking about, which means they naturally don't try on alternative perspectives or explanations. It's really up to us to guide them in this direction and make sure they practice over and over and over and over again. We have to provide them with both insight and action. So these kids really do need a lot of our support. And it's mostly important to make sure that this insight is based on clear logic and not an appeal to emotion because that's just not going to work with how their brains are wired. They're very concrete thinkers, so we need to be very clear and logical with how we explain what's happening. Mm -hmm. Then we get into the three Ps, which are essential to the road to success. So there are three easy ways to remember how to teach our kids to resist habitual negative thinking and self-blame. They're known as the three Ps. Permanence, pervasiveness, and personalization. So permanence, these kids often assume that bad events are permanent and that good events are temporary. 
So this needs to be really clearly pointed out to them over and over again. And they need specific examples of bad things that they've experienced that, in fact, were not permanent. So they give a really good example to support this of Patrick, again, our superstar of the book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Patrick was learning to drive and he had really practiced a lot and was going to take the driver's ed test. I think the behind the wheel. He failed, which he had convinced himself that he would. And then his mind was telling him during the moment, his mind was telling him he would fail. His anxiety was off the charts and he made a mistake that he really normally wouldn't have made. And after he failed, he swore he would never again try to take the test because he believed that once he failed, he would always fail. Mm -hmm. But his Aunt Mary noted, you know, he needs more than average success before he'll own it. And even then, he still struggles because his negative voice is so loud. So it took some time for Patrick to return to his baseline, and he had to have many talks about the faulty logic of his thinking with both Barbara, his therapist, and probably his Aunt Mary and his parents. But it was really important to get him back in the driver's seat as soon as possible. They renewed the emphasis on relaxation and breathing techniques and rehearsed positive self-talk. And then he eventually took the exam again and passed. Mm -hmm. And now he drives frequently and confidently. So this is an example that when bad things happen to him, he needs to remind himself that while his initial belief may always be once a bad outcome, always a bad outcome, it's not true. He just needs to be reminded of the proof. Yeah, you know, they start this whole chapter with that really beautiful, I love that quote from Henry Ford that says, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're probably right. And that's pretty much Mm. dead on Patrick because he just, he believed that he would fail that test. And it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like if you just are in that mindset, I'm not good at this. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail. You're going to fail. Yeah. Sometimes optimism can be annoying, but if you think you can do something, you'll figure out a way to do it. And your attitude is just everything. And also, (laughs) one more reminder of the whole brain child. It reminded me of when they say to teach kids that emotions are not permanent, like let the clouds of emotions roll by. You know, kids just no matter what, if it's something they failed at or a bad thing that happened or an emotional state, sometimes they just get so focused on that thing that they think that that's how they'll always be. And with everything, with emotion, with feelings, with bad things that happen, it's just so important to show kids that nothing is permanent. Yeah. Even for myself, you know, sometimes if things aren't going well or just a setback, it's easy, so easy for me to slip into this thought process of like, it's always going to be this way. When will it end? But it always does. (laughs) And that's, it's really good to work on that mindset and change into more of a positive frame of thinking. Yeah. But okay. So now pervasiveness is another self-defeating attitude that means assuming that difficulty or failure in one area of life means that life as a whole is a failure. So this is overgeneralizing like one failure to everything in your life. Children on the spectrum really need extra and specific help with this. So when a child with ASD fails at one task, they often assume that they're bad at every task. And you can support them by listing areas or things that they're good at. But it's a good idea to keep up any activity that they're good at until they have achieved a level of mastery. So it doesn't have to be something fancy or difficult. But, you know, if they have an interest in drawing really encourage them to draw and draw and draw until they're amazing at it because everybody has those natural talents 
And this is something where you can always go, okay, you know, I'm sorry that swimming was really hard, you know, or your swimming lessons are really hard for you, but you're so, so good at drawing. And that's a good way to remind them that failure is not everything. And then personalization. So there's a huge difference between how optimists and pessimists attribute cause to events. When bad things happen, pessimists assume they personally caused it. Optimists assume it was just bad luck or bad circumstances. However, when a pessimist encounters something good, they assume it was just dumb luck. But when an optimist encounters something good, they internalize a sense of achievement and give themselves credit for their role in success. So, I mean, what a good case to be an optimist instead of a pessimist. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know where I fall. I think most people are probably somewhere in the middle, but unfortunately, I was relating to some of the pessimist things like when bad things happen, it's so easy to blame yourself, you know? Yeah. And we definitely shouldn't do that. So they give a good example in the book of how Katie, the mother of Scott, who's the former quality assurance tester, made up a game called the manners game to introduce or to reinforce Scott's specific skills and internalize his sense of personal accomplishment. So they played the game one night a week at the dinner table. Katie would place two nickels in front of each person who was eating. And then she would pick a specific manner to focus on, like not chewing with your mouth open. And then it was every person's job to watch each other and kind of monitor to see if they could catch somebody making a mistake. And then if they did, they could take one of the person's nickels with no whining allowed. (laughs) And it was really motivating for everyone because it was like, oh, this is a fun game night thing. But I have to say, I think in the book, they were like, oh, and if you didn't lose any of your nickels, you got to keep them. And I was like, wow, <laughs> 10 cents. Hey, well, what if you wow, got it's exciting. What if you got all the nickels at the whole table that night? What if everybody got called out by you? You might have well, then 20 have cents. cents. <laughs> <laughs> but I do see how that's motivating. Um, I was just cracking up like, oh, 10 cents, 50 cents. In these times of inflation, it feels so negligible, but (laughs) I don't know. I thought, wow, also very inventive of Katie. Yes. So something that was important in each of the personal profiles from the chapter one that we just went over was that each individual had at least one parent, teacher, neighbor, employer, or other mentor to guide them. So these adults were able to blend being a positive role model, a source of advice or information, and someone who expected effort and accountability from these kids. So while the majority of these people really weren't professionals, maybe they didn't know a lot about autism, they were good at recognizing the uniqueness of each child and sensing the area of need. They saw the best in each child and were able to nurture and instruct them. So you could tell this made a really big difference to the child as well, because in this chapter, they have some quotes from each person saying like this person made such a monumental impact on me Mm -hmm. some of the mentors were friends of the child's parents and some were teachers several of the profiled people mentioned influential teachers in their lives and emphasized that these teachers saw them as special and unique and provided support in their areas of interest so this is making me think about us as speech therapists because we can be these people for the children on our caseload So maybe this could be done through tailoring therapy in order to reflect the child's interests or just letting the kids be seen and supported as the unique individuals that they are within the session. Again, talking about fine lines to walk in special education, I think 
sometimes as a speech therapist, it can be tough because we look through the scope of trying to stamp out what makes the child so unique in order to help them fit in or help them make friends. And I know the tide is turning on this within the therapy world, but things like eye gaze goals, where maybe it really is uncomfortable for those children to make eye contact, but, you know, we're trying to make them fit the mold of a typical person. And, you know, I just don't know if that's necessarily right, even though the intentions are good. Like most of the time we're working on these goals to help them avoid being bullied or to help them form friendships. But we should be celebrating what makes these children special and unique and really tailoring our therapy to help support them in the way that they are and to help them reach their individual potential. And it's really not that hard. It just takes a little bit of creative thinking on your part to tailor your therapy to the child. I hadn't thought about this before, but now that you mention it, you know, later they're going to talk about how you can explain something to a kid with autism so that it becomes more important to them. And yeah, we're kind of moving away from those goals that are like, so-and-so will maintain eye contact. No, if that's uncomfortable for somebody, if you give them the reasons why it's important to at least kind of turn your body towards someone so that you can read cues, you know, if you can get them to kind of at least face their communication partner, because I've certainly had kids who are turned fully away from the group when they're communicating. But if you give them those, you know, why is it important to be able to see the person you're talking to? Oh, so I can know if they're bored. I can know if they're upset. If you have those reasons, because sometimes people with autism can kind of be a questioner like, well, why would I do that? They want to know why <laughs> that would be important. Well, I know. And I have some notes later on motivation on the child's end, because that's huge too. Like you have to have buy-in from them. So Whatever you're trying to teach them has to be relevant to them. And I know, you know, talking about making friends, I've had kids who really want that and they are receptive and they're open to hearing what we have to say about it. But I've had other kids who like, it's a waste of time. They don't care. And maybe they're shutting down, you know, yeah. some of the stuff we talked about with the whole brain child. But ultimately, like it is a partnership and everyone kind of has to be on board for that to matter. There's a really beautiful part of this chapter that covered the teaching philosophy of Sarah's science teacher. Her name is Mrs. Letzos. She talked about the way that she made math interesting to her students and how she appreciated each individual student's perspective. So she sounds like a really, truly amazing teacher because she really understands that all children are unique, but they can all make valuable contributions. So this is what truly makes a good teacher into a great teacher, I think. And then the last part, which I found pretty interesting, too, was talking about getting families and schools to work together. This is really talking about how families can seek preparation for life after high school from the school district. Mm -hmm. They encourage the family to have an IEP in place in order to access these services, which for sure is important. The book says that many districts will say they don't have these kinds of vocational programs but in my experience, and as time has gone on since the book was written, I would say that probably depends on the area you're in and each specific district. Mm -hmm. If you're in a more metro area, maybe there's more of these programs. If you're more rural, it might not be as fleshed out. At my previous district, we had programs that focused on life skills and vocational training, as well as community outings to teach the children how to interact outside of the school setting. So this was for high schoolers. We also had a continuing education program for students once they graduated from high school. So instead of going to community college, they could go into another program. 
they were really helpful and they can set students up with jobs or at least some light job training, real life training for how to navigate things like money management, independent living skills, and navigating public transit independently. So these programs exist. They're out there. They're a great resource and a great way to sort of bridge that gap between high school and really being independent. That's great. But personally, you know, I found it can be difficult for parents when an IEP and the goals start to change in order to support transition to life after high school. So depending on your state and your district, this is around age 16. Many parents really want their kids to have academic focused goals. That's just what they've been working on for so long. For many parents, that's a marker of success. But we're starting to shift the gears into looking at life skills goals that are more appropriate for the student. So, you know, as with anything and with the IEP really being a team, we need to balance those. I think when the team balances both the parents' wishes and what's best for the child, everyone's happier. Yeah. But I think definitely you need to have some life skill goals in place. And that can look different depending on the child's skill set and their level. They gave a really good example of a student who was interested in working in the film industry after high school. So his IEP team worked together to support him with goals like researching occupations and job requirements in the film industry, people and organizations in his community where he could gain experience. So the student was actually placed in an internship out in the community, and they provided an aid to support the internship. The student was able to learn skills related to operating professional video cameras lighting and sound. And then he was also supported in order to write a movie review column for the school newspaper. So for me, this is just demonstrating how every person on the IEP team can kind of come in with their piece to to support the vocational dreams of the child and kind of help them get their feet wet and decide what they want to do with that information. Yeah. That student they were talking about now has the opportunity to put some stuff on his resume or to have some experience when he talks in an interview. So That is huge. And again, mentorship goes a long way there. So overall, you know, mentors can be even like media personalities or superheroes. There was a little part at the end where they just talked about some examples of people who saw themselves in celebrities. I think Conan O'Brien was mentioned, which was really funny. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Just people, characters who inspire them to be their best selves or to mirror some of the mannerisms that they like in those people. Yeah. So that is it for chapter two. I hope everybody was able to find some information in there that inspired them or maybe something you can use with some students on your own caseload. We're looking forward to having all of you guys join us for the next episode where we'll be covering chapter three from The Loving Push. Bye, Laura. Bye, Adrian. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast. It's a community. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash the SLP book club to join the discussion after each episode. Want even more of the SLP book club? We've made all the resources for this book, including chapter summaries and visuals available for free on our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash the SLP book club to download these great materials. To learn more about the SLP book club, go to the SLP You can contact us by emailing hello at the SLP Follow us on Instagram at SLP underscore book club. Find us on TikTok at the SLP book club. 